Our scripture passage for today comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 52. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. And today we have a special guest speaker all the way from New Jersey. He spoke for us a few times, uh, many times pre-recorded on, during the pandemic as well, and we're so glad to have him. Pac- uh, Pastor Peter, let's welcome him with a round of applause. Guys, it's uh, great to be with you here uh, once again. Um, Pastor Charles, that looked like a very tricky treasure map. I'm glad you found where you need to go. That's right, that's right. Um, so today's passage, uh, Mark 14, it's an, I, I'll admit it's an odd passage for any guest preacher to come with, and um, I'll confess it's because in my own church back in New Jersey, we're in a series in the Gospel of Mark, and this was the passage that I was assigned. So yes, number one, this is not the first time I'm preaching the sermon. And if you're offended by that, I'm sorry. If any of you guys have a fresh sermon right now, I welcome you to... Okay, all right. Uh, so it's too late. I have the mic. Um, Anyways, to give a little background, uh, chapter 14 really details the final hours of Jesus' life before his death on the cross, and today's passage centers around the betrayal of Judas, and Judas, of course, Judas Iscariot was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and um, as we get into it, I think there's an interesting takeaway from this text about the quality of our relationship with Jesus. One of the most painful things that I hear as a Christian, as a churchman, as a former pastor, is when people who've grown up in the faith, people who've gone to church, who have been passionate about the faith for a while, you know, after some time, they seem to drift and fall away for whatever reason. And, you know, maybe for some of you here in this room or some of you watching on YouTube, uh, maybe that describes you. Maybe it's a struggle for you, too. this relationship that we have with Jesus. And what I hope to do is to take a look at our text and think through maybe in a diagnostic way our own relationship with Jesus. And what I hope we take away and what I hope we come away with is a resolve to love and to follow him. Because our relationship with Jesus, you know, whether you're new to the faith, whether you're checking out Christianity, really the essence, the core of what it means to be a Christian is about the quality of our relationship with him. Right, people, you know, you ask people in the street, you know, what they think being a Christian is all, is all about, and, and generally you'll get a list of behaviors, right? Being a nice person, being a moral person, going to church. And of course, these things are part of what it means to be a Christian. But fundamentally, Christian behaviors are expressions of how Jesus changes who we are. So let's look at our text, 
And let's look at it under three headings, three inspired headings. Every sermon seems to have three headings. All right, our headings for today, the kiss of betrayal, number one. Second is seizure. And finally, the crossroads. All right, so let's look at our first point, the kiss of betrayal. So just before our text in verse 43, Jesus had been praying in anguish at the garden, at the foot of Mount of Olives, a garden called Gethsemane, right, knowing that his death was imminent. Right, his, it was late in the night. He was asking his close disciples to come and pray with him, but they were falling asleep. And in verse 43, it, it says that while he was speaking, while he was telling his disciples, will you not stay with me for another hour and pray? While he was speaking to them for a third time, Judas, Judas Iscariot came with a crowd that was armed with swords and with clubs. And Judas Iscariot, like we mentioned, as some of you may know, has, was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. This is a point that Mark has been emphasizing from the beginning of chapter 14. He calls Judas Iscariot one of the 12. And he does so again here in verse 43 for emphasis. This wasn't just any Judas, which was a common name at the time. This was Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples who had a special closeness with Jesus. And Jesus ate with them, he received them, he bunked with them, and they shared a lot of life together for the past three years. Right, so all of the 12 disciples, including Judas, were regarded by Jesus as close friends. And one can argue, you know, especially early on in the ministry, overall things were going great until now in our text. In a really messed up turn of events, after sharing a Passover meal earlier on in chapter 14, a Passover meal which of course had significant religious meaning. While Jesus was praying that night in the garden, Judas comes to betray his master to a crowd. And we learn in verse 43 that this crowd was sent by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. These are the people that kind of maintain the order of the Jewish faith. And you see early on in chapter 14, right, these are the same people that were bent on arresting Jesus and putting him to death. They saw him as a threat. So in verse 44, Judas arranged a signal. He said, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And lead him away under guard. Right? And two things to note about that betrayal, of that betrayal in verse 45. First, notice that Judas calls him rabbi. He still calls him rabbi. Rabbi, of course, is an honorific title. It's, someone, it, it's a title of respect that you say to someone you acknowledge as your superior. Second, he kisses him. Right? The word kissed there in the original language, right? It's not just like a, a peck on the cheek. He didn't just come to Jesus and say, Rabbi, and, you know, small peck on the cheek. Um, I don't personally come from a kissing culture. I imagine, you know, looking around the room that many of us don't come from a kissing culture. I don't remember ever seeing my parents kiss. Um, I'm sure they did, you know, after we went to sleep at night, I think. Um, but anyways, you know, I remember one day, you know, I was with my family, and I saw an old female friend that I hadn't seen in a long time. And, you know, anytime you see a friend that you haven't seen in a long time, you, you do this like, like, you do this math, like do we shake hands or, or do we hug, right? So me, I'm not a socially smooth operator. I'm not a, you know, like a slick guy or anything like that. So I'm doing the math in my head. I'm, are we shaking or are we hugging? And 
as I kind of reach out my hands to do, you know, like it's an ambiguous enough. I can shake or I can hug, <laughs> right? As I'm doing this, she pulls me in and she gives me a peck peck, like two kisses on the cheek. Now, as a grown Asian man, I know there's nothing romantic, nothing affectionate. Again, my wife was there to witness the entire thing, but this was just a way of saying hello, right? Nothing, nothing meaningful or nothing beyond that, right? But the word that Mark uses to describe how Judas kissed Jesus, this was an intensified, this was a, a passionate kiss. I don't know if you remember in Luke 7, there was a sinful woman who kissed the feet of Jesus in complete devotion to him when he forgave her many sins. That's the kind of kiss that Mark is talking about. This is how the father kissed his prodigal son shamelessly in Luke chapter 15 when he thought he lost his son forever and he saw him out there in a distance. And now historians and scholars disagree whether any kiss was customary between a rabbi and a disciple, but they all agree that for Judas, number one, address Jesus as rabbi, and number two, to give this kind of affectionate kiss as a signal to the crowd. Judas was essentially making a spectacle of Jesus. Right? As commentators say, the spirit of the situation was that he was essentially mocking Jesus. Right? And I say all this to point out that our text is communicating to us that Judas knew exactly what he was doing. He was very deliberate about leaving Jesus. He wasn't just going to leave Jesus quietly. It wasn't like he was going to stop showing up to service and, and ghost the whole thing. He was very deliberate about, deliberate about how he wanted to betray Jesus. He came from a spirit of disdain. He started to look down on Jesus. Right? And that same spirit of disdain, that same spirit of looking down on Jesus, that's the same spirit captured in the crowd that was out there to catch him. And we could tell that by verse 48 when Jesus says to him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? That word robber there is a word at the time to describe a common criminal, right? Not like the, the, the kind of hero criminal like Robin Hood who does good things for the poor. Not that kind of criminal. Or a white-collar criminal who's otherwise successful and respectable and he just got caught doing something shady. Not that kind of criminal. This is the kind of criminal that society looked down upon. Who's disdain, mockery, looking down on Jesus. And so, coming back to Judas, we see a guy who's been following Jesus for a few years now. And after following him for so long, you know, there must have been something about Jesus that drew him, drew, drew Judas to him in the beginning, right? There must have been something, like some, something that, he, that spoke to his life. But after following for a while, he just didn't live up to Judas' expectations anymore, right? He didn't deliver on what he thought Jesus, the Messiah, was all about. And so in a conscious moment, he decided, it wasn't worth it anymore, right? And he wanted to sell him out, right? Again, he was making a mockery of Jesus. This was a total spectacle. And now, as a, as a reader of this text, you know, I have to think that for Judas to get here, for Judas to get to a place where he was once one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, to now mocking him and betraying him, 
Right? That sort of thing didn't happen overnight. It wasn't like he was fine all along and one day he thought, you know what, I'm going to betray Jesus. No, I, I don't think it happened like that. He was already on a trajectory towards betrayal. Right? None of the disciples were perfect. Right? All the gospel stories make that clear. They all had their issues. They all had their flaws. But you read other passages about Judas, like in John chapter 12 and 13, and it reads to me like Judas was sliding for a while. And once he slid to a certain point, it was then that Satan was able to enter into his heart. And he did what he did. Right, so let's pause here for a moment. Because right, some of you guys have been coming to church for a while. Some of you identify as Christians. Right? You have friends here. You have community here at church. But maybe even your heart is starting to drift. As you go through the grind of life, the grind of work, the grind of raising your family. Maybe your heart isn't all there, centered on Jesus, following him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Your heart starts to drift, and it's subtle. But when it drifts, and if we leave it unchecked, even our own hearts, our own minds, as Christians, can regard God from devotion to derision, from a posture of worship to mockery, right? Now, I'm not here to call out um, overt sins, right? Not like greed, pride, racism, causing division, gossip, adultery, stealing, right? Those are all part of it. They're all correlated with drift, but that's not what I'm talking about, right? Just like the disciples, none of us are perfect. None of us will achieve perfection in this life. When I say that our hearts are starting to drift, I'm talking about the depth and the quality of our relationship to God, about how much he informs who we are. You know, I've been married for uh, 13 years now. Um, It'll be 14 years in March. And, you know, we've been through our ups and downs, Jess and I. And that's part of any normal relationship. And even today, our marriage by no means is perfect. Not by a long shot. Ask Jess, she will tell you readily, right? But I know her more, and Jess knows me more than we've known each other from the beginning of our marriage. We have children together. We have memories together. And, you know, as a guy who thinks I'm all cool and independent, I have to admit right, that having lived with her for the past 13 years, she's legitimately changed me. She's legitimately changed parts of me, about who I am, right? And that's what happens in any close relationship. And so let's look at our relationship with God. Maybe at the start, someone brought you to church or something brought you to church and you came along and you've been doing this for years and you might have legitimately felt at times like the presence of God, like you had an experience And I'm not here to discount any of that. But the bottom line is, if you were to take an honest, holistic inventory of your life, of your maturity, your character, the matrix by which you make your life decisions, how much you're able to love people who are different from you, people you would regard as enemies, but how you process your past, your deepening connection with the church, your ability to bear spiritual fruit, 
your ability to discern your own spiritual gifts, feeling his strength in your weakness, sensing his comfort in the midst of fear. These are examples of outward signs that point to an inward, thriving relationship with God. And so with that in mind, if you honestly compare who you were when you first became a Christian to who you are today, and only you know this, only you know this better than me, or the community around you, the close people around you know this better than me. If you were to compare and take an honest look and see whether God has made a difference in our lives, whether he has made us more more like him, what do you see? What do you see? And if he hasn't, maybe today is the day that you resolve to really follow him. That's our first point. To summarize it, Judas, one of the 12 close followers of Jesus, had drifted to a place where he regarded Jesus now with disdain and ultimately betrayed him. So let's move to our second point, the seizure of Jesus. Now, as a result of this betrayal, in verse 46, it says the crowd laid hands on him and seized him. And if you, you know, ever look up this passage in like a, a, a search engine or on a web page and you press control F to find, you know, a word on the page and you type in the word seize, you'll know that this word comes out four times, right? The word seize. And it's the same word in the original language in the Greek. It's the word krateo. And it has this feeling of aggressively taking control. And I think, I point this out by, because by emphasizing this word, Mark signals for us a shift. Right? Mark signals for us something that's significantly about the change in the story in the life of Jesus. And verse 46 is when it happens. It says, the men seized Jesus and arrested him. Right? Mark is signaling a pivot in the earthly life of Jesus. One commentary says it like this. It says, while to this point Jesus had been instructing disciples and guiding events forward, from now on others will determine his fate. Right? Others will determine his fate. Now, of course, the commentator is not suggesting that you know, this betrayal by Judas was some accident, some unforeseen incident. Right? It's not like Judas caught Jesus by surprise. No, I, I, it's something that Jesus had predicted. Right? You look through the book of Mark. Right? I think I have a slide up with passages from chapter 8 and chapter 10 and chapter 14, he talked about how he must suffer and be rejected and be killed and that he will be betrayed by one of his disciples. And so, yes, the commentator quickly acknowledges that though others will determine his fate, God is ultimately still in control. Jesus says it himself in verse 49, let the scriptures be fulfilled. So in the grand scheme of things, Things are going according to plan. But I think it's an interesting point that Mark is asking us to consider. Right? That all throughout the life and the ministry of Jesus, even through opposition, even through hardships and testing, Jesus had been leading his life. Jesus made things happen. Right? Jesus went and moved and did as he wanted. But once Jesus allows others to determine his fate, once he becomes vulnerable to the will of the people, once they seize him, there's that word, look at how Mark describes what happens. Right in verse 47, one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the priest and cut off his ear. One short, concise 
first. Now, if you compare this story to the other Gospels, right? There are, you know, Matthew, Luke, John. They all write about this incident. You'll see that Mark's account is remarkable for its lack of detail, right? It's just one sentence, and that's it, right? If you read the parallel accounts in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke and John, you can find out the name of the servant that got his ear cut off. His name was Malchus. You can see the identity of the person who swung the sword. It was probably Peter. And you know that Jesus ends up healing this servant's ear. Right? But Mark doesn't identify the victim. Mark doesn't identify the perpetrator. There's no mention of healing. Or the fact that Jesus said, hey guys, if I want it out of this, I can call upon God and he will send me 12 legions of angels to rescue me. Right? We see this in all the other accounts, but Mark is silent on this. And I have to think it's not for lack of information on Mark's part. Right? Most uh, scholars agree, and you probably know this as well, that Mark was written by a guy named John Mark. Right? He's the guy that penned the Gospels. But a lot of the content comes from Peter. It's from the oral tradition of Peter. And I think from Peter's perspective, right, this, is, this is like moments before he was about to betray Jesus himself. I don't think this was a moment that he forgot, right? I think he knew, he had in his mind all the things that happened that night. But I wonder as Peter recounted this story that he left out those details on purpose. He left out those details on purpose to convey a feeling, to convey a, an emotion, an experience that he had once Jesus was seized. You know, for sure you guys have heard the song uh, by Carrie Underwood, um, I'm not a Carrie Underwood fan, but I just thought the title of the song was Catchy Jesus, Take the Wheel. Um, I think, I, I didn't listen to the whole song, but I think the, the chorus kind of says it all. You know, Jesus, take the wheel, take it from my hands. I can't do this on my own. And I imagine the song something about life going out of control and, you know, she needs Jesus to take the wheel. Right? What's essentially happening here, I think what Mark wants to communicate here is the opposite of Jesus, take the wheel. This is the crowd taking the wheel from Jesus. Now remember for Judas and the scribes and the teachers of the law and the elders, they think that seizing Jesus will get them what they want. They think it's a good thing to finally bring this controversial Messiah under their control. But what actually happens when the crowd seizes control? What actually happens when Jesus lets the crowd take the wheel from his hands? What actually happens when the creator and sustainer of all things, visible and invisible, is no longer in his proper place? What happens when he lets us determine not only his, but our own fate? Mark paints a very dire picture. And things devolve into violence and chaos. Swords and clubs come out. It's every person from themselves. Survival of the fittest. Healing has no place. Names, whether it's of the victim or the perpetrator, they have no place. There is no one to cry out to. Grace and peace and love. Everything that we cherish has no place. Right, and look in verse 50 about how Mark describes the loneliness they had all left him and fled, including Peter, including the other disciples. And in a sense, 
He's saying true community even has no place once they seize control of Jesus. You know, if there's one thing that all of us have learned through this COVID-19 pandemic is how much we need each other, how much we crave community. It's built into our DNA. And so as Jesus sees, we see that all the things that we enjoy, all the good things that come from God that we could take for granted, all being pulled back. Life starts to degrade into violence, into chaos, into a lack of grace. For sure, this is not an environment that brings out our best. It's a scary place to be. And, you know, verse 51 and 52, um, it's there in the pericope of the text. And um, it's interesting. We have a famous streaking incident. Right? It says a young man uh, wearing literally nothing but a linen garment. Must have been very uncomfortable. I imagine linen wasn't as smooth as it is today. Uh, they seized him, right? Same word. They seized him and he fled naked, leaving his garment behind, right? And, you know, of all the things that are unique to Mark's account, this streaking incident is unique to Mark. None of the other gospel writers mention it. And scholars wonder why it's there, right? Why, why mention this in the text, right? And, you know, some things have been said about whether this is like Mark inserting himself into the text. You know, it's o- Peter's oral tradition that he's writing, but hey, I want to write about myself too. Maybe this is Mark inserting himself into the text. Maybe it is, you know, maybe it's not. And if you're, if you want to geek out on the scriptures, maybe it might be fun to speculate, but, you know, other commentators suggest that maybe that incident is there to simply show us that this young man, he wasn't one of the 12 special disciples. He's sort of in the crowd. He had no name. He was an extra. He was an ordinary dude following Jesus from a distance. And though they tried to seize him, he got so scared that he ran away and even ran away naked. And another commentator points this out that, you know, maybe this person is mentioned here to bring us into the story. It's one thing to, to follow Jesus when times are good, but what if following Jesus starts to cost? What if it starts to cost your livelihood or your reputation? Well, God forbid, I don't wish this on anybody, but what if following Jesus comes at the literal cost of our lives? And it has for many Christians, and it does today. Would you have stayed with Jesus, or would you have fled? Now we're at the end of the text. Let's, let's bring this down and, and capture the story that we have so far. Right? The, what's the arc of the story that we have so far? And what's the takeaway that we can kind of start looking at? Right? So Judas, a close follower of Jesus, had betrayed him. And violence ensues. And I think there's a lesson here about the consequences of a heart that drifts away from God when we think we know how to run our lives better apart from God, what we often don't see is that everything good we have is a result of God's grace in our lives. If you identify as a Christian, if you're in Christ, if you are a person of faith, even suffering, even hardship is grace. The scriptures promise that he doesn't give us more than we can handle. These are times by which he refines us. These are times by which he strengthens our faith. But if we cross that line 
and we decide that Jesus is irrelevant, or somehow we know better how to run our lives, we are running in a direction that harms us. You know, this is captured so clearly in the, in the story of Jonah. Um, I, I'm sure a lot of you guys are familiar with the story of Jonah. If you've ever taught Sunday school or been part of Sunday school in the past, Jonah is a prophet in the Old Testament. And God, in Jonah's life, had told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of a city called Assyria, the greatest kingdom at the time. And what's interesting is not that he told him to go to Nineveh. I think what's interesting is he told him to go to Nineveh, and from where he was, Nineveh was in one direction, but Jonah went in the exact opposite direction. And the text goes at length to tell us that he was fleeing from the presence of God. He was literally doing the opposite of what God had told him to do. Tarshish, which is where he ended up, is literally in the opposite direction from Nineveh. And as a result, what happens to him? He gets on a boat, the boat gets rocked, they throw him over, and he gets swallowed by a giant fish. And what happens is really interesting. As he's getting swallowed by a giant fish, that fish starts to swim to the deeps underground into Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the underworld, the place of the dead. And in the ancient Hebrew mind, Sheol was the farthest place you could be from the presence of God. This is where the fish had taken him. And it's from those depths that Jonah, the prophet, finally understood that his life, this is what he says, my life was fainting away. Now I know that as I flee from the presence of God, my life is fainting away. I thought I was following my own heart. I thought I was following my own passion, my own path to freedom, my own path towards salvation. But what it's done is it's landed me in chaos. It's landed me in a place where I don't want to be. So it's from there in the belly of the whale in Sheol that he resolves. I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. He found life, true life, in repentance. Repentance is a word about changing the orientation of your mind, about a literal change of trajectory from where you were going. In repentance, he found true life. And this leads us to our final point, the crossroads. I call it the crossroads because the picture in verse 52 is this, that when Jesus was seized and arrested, all of his followers have left him and scatter one way. But as Jesus is seized, he goes ahead with his arrest. And if you read on in Mark, he knows that his seizure will lead him to be, putting, to be put in front of a trial, in front of the chief priests, in front of the, the uh, teachers and the elders and the scribes. And he knows that this kangaroo trial will lead to a sentence of death on a cross. Right? So while the disciples and everybody else runs for their lives, Jesus runs towards his death. And all I want to do is remind us here that even the most devout of us, if we leave our hearts unchecked, all of us will tend to drift away from God. And I remember, you know, I was listening to a lecture by R.C. Sproul, and he, he talked about uh, Psalm 19. And Psalm 19 is one of the great psalms in the Old Testament. It talks about the heavens declaring the glory of God. The heavens and all creation testifies to the greatness of God. But as humans, as people who are marred in sin, we have a tendency to see all of creation with 
blinders on. Right? We walk and live blind to how all of creation testifies to the glory of God and His greatness. Right? So when we look at creation, instead of worship and devotion, we remain ignorant about how it speaks to God's greatness. Right? We, re- we, re- we, we remain ignorant about how much we need Him for life. We fail to see that in Him is our truest selves, true freedom, true peace, true rest for our souls. You know, in our text, you could say that, you know, Judas was the bad guy. And of course, you expect the bad guy to betray Jesus. But really, even the disciples, the, the, the good guys in our text, the ones you thought would follow Jesus to the end, when their lives were on the line, loyalty and devotion went out the door. Even they abandoned Jesus. And this is a picture of who all of us are in whatever part of the spectrum. Our hearts tend to drift. And so Jesus came and lived and willingly went to the cross. While we have a tendency to run away from Jesus, he came in pursuit of us to find us, to open our eyes and to heal us, to save us and to have us. You know, um, Verse 49 again in our text, Jesus says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. And, and commentators wonder what scripture Jesus had in mind, right? Because they're not sure. It doesn't really say. But many think one of them was from Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 at the end, verse 12, it reads like this. He poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What does that mean? that he bore the sins of many, that he makes intercession. Well, the end result is this, that God's acceptance of us isn't measured by how much we love God. God's acceptance of us isn't measured by how much we do for God. All of us stand condemned. The text makes that clear. Whether you're Judas or you're the disciples, all of us stand condemned. But Jesus' suffering and death on the cross was about how he took that condemnation for us. So that if we receive and trust him for what he has done for us, he gives us his record of righteousness so that when God sees me, he sees someone as pure, as holy, and as righteous as Jesus himself. My standing before God, my acceptance before God is all about what God has done for me. And if this is the faith that describes you, I'm going to remind you again that in Christ, you are legitimately a new creation. You are legitimately born again. You are legitimately a royal priesthood, a holy people for himself, set apart. God has special ears and eyes for you. And our call is to live into this identity as a people chosen, as a people accepted. It's to live into this identity as children of God. We're called to find our truest selves, our truest freedom, our truest peace, our truest rest in Him. And I want to tell you that it's a journey. It's progressive. It's gradual. Let me just say, practically speaking, that just as spiritual drift is gradual, so is spiritual growth. It's not automatic. It's an act of the will. It's intentional. It's incremental. You know, recently, um, 
not recently, I guess it was last October, I went to the doctor for a checkup, regular checkup. My health insurance company incentivizes me to do this. I got blood drawn to check my cholesterol, and guess what? Over the past four years, and I noticed this is exactly when I moved to New Jersey, my bad cholesterol has shot right up, right? So if you're thinking about moving to New Jersey, please come and share in this misery with me. But anyways, it's, it's a strange correlation, but since I moved to New Jersey, my bad LDL cholesterol has been going up. So the doctor suggested this, right? You're not at a level where you need medication, right? But what you can do is you can cut out meat or cut out like, you know, fatty meats and you can increase your cardio. Right? Now, obviously, obviously I'm not going to cut out meat. <laughs> Who does that, right? It's one of God's greatest blessings, right? But in January, in the dead of winter, I resolved to start running and increase my cardio. Right? I started about a mile and a half, uh, you know, kind of like walking and running, walking and running every quarter mile. And now today, I can run about three and a half miles straight without stopping, right? And I say this because I have no idea whether my cholesterol got better, really, because my blood test isn't until October. But one of the side effects that I noticed was that um, I'm about 20 pounds lighter than I was in January. And really, it's not anything significant because I had gained the COVID-19, 19, you know, I had gained weight through the pandemic. So really, I'm back at my pre-pandemic weight. But I will say that the change in weight was really gradual. I remember in the middle of the pandemic, I would put my dress shirts on. I'm like, oh, I don't remember this being so slim fit, right? It was really, <laughs> really tight, right? But then now I can put my clothes on and it feels like it used, it fits like it used to, to fit in the past, right? And the takeaway here is not to start your cardio and lose weight. No, it's to illustrate a point that progress is incremental, right? It's gradual. It's over a long period of time, right? And much of the ordinary Christian experience, it's not about big events. It's not about big revivals. It's not about big encounters with God. These can certainly help. These can be a start. These, but these things are not the things that sustain us. You know, I started to read a, a daily uh, page from a collection of Puritan prayers called The Valley of Vision. And when I read it, I see in those prayers that really, even as the Puritans experienced it. Christian life is about small steps, daily commitments, small decisions to follow him, to deny self, to take up your cross daily, to spend time with him. It's waking up every morning, thank you for this gift of life. Give me wisdom so that everyone I encounter may I encounter with grace. May I represent your blessing to them. It's not Jesus in competition with work life, with family life or financial life or whatever else that you need to do. It's about having Jesus and resolving to have him at your center. Daily finding yourself in him. Daily processing your emotions, your work, your time in him. These work together to incrementally form a long chain of a deepening relationship with God. And you'll see that as you do, the blinders start to come off. We find ourselves with him. And one day, we will all die. It's a matter of time. And when we do, we encounter our Savior face to face with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. 
Our God and our Father, we thank you so much uh, for this group of people who um, either are curious about you or are in you, who follow you. God, I know that as we live this life, as your servant Tim Keller has often said, that you are an audio but life is on video and life drags us into a trajectory that drifts away from you. So much of what slams us in our face about life takes us away from our uh, devotion to you. But Father, I pray that today would be a day where we resolve to make a small step towards you. We resolve that tomorrow when we wake up, we will thank you for the gift of life. We will thank you for allowing us to live another day. What is it that you have for us to do? What does it mean to, to center our hearts, all of ourselves, in you? Father, move us in a trajectory towards you. Father, I pray that we become more and more like the image of, of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.